Our speaker this evening is English professor John T. Matthews. Born in Philadelphia, Dr. Matthews received his BA from the University of Pennsylvania and MA and PhD from Johns Hopkins University. He is a professor of English at Boston University and president of the Society for the Study of Southern Literature. He has authored numerous articles on American fiction, and his books include The Play of Faulkner's Language, The Sound and the Fury, Faulkner and the Lost Cause, and William Faulkner, Seeing Through the South. In 2006, he won the Arthur B. Metcalf Award for Excellence in Teaching from Boston University. His current research focuses on the purposeful misrepresentation of the South in American literature. Tonight, Dr. Matthews will discuss with us how Harper Lee's recently published work, Go Set a Watchman, alters our understanding of what Lee wanted to say about the racial crisis in the United States during the decades of the modern civil rights movement. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Matthews to the Boston Athenaeum. Thank you for that introduction, Hannah. <clears throat> it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I want to begin by thanking Hannah Bertaldi and Deborah Vernon for helping arrange the event tonight. They were a pleasure to, to work with. Um, I also want to thank you for coming out to talk about um, Harper Lee and to think about her writing uh, in these fresh circumstances of the publication of her new old novel, Go Set a Watchman. Um, You've been, I want, to, I want to start by giving you a few images to focus on. You've been staring at the cover of, the, of this new novel for um, the last 20 or 30 minutes. Um, it's a gorgeous cover. Uh, what strikes me about it is that it's a little retro. It takes us back to the 50s, both the color and um, the print. Um, it also, let me go back. It also shows... Um, a train coming toward us. So we're in the position of welcoming or greeting whoever's on that train, and I think it evokes Jean Louise's return to the South. Um, it's also, in a way, an unmarked um, <clears throat> landscape. It's very spare, empty, um, almost um, uh, without detail that could let us identify where this is taking place, and I think that's part of the um, power of uh, Harper Lee's original novel, um, and we'll talk more about the question of region and relation between regions when we um, get deeper into the question. This is a photograph of Harper Lee in 2007 when she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Honor by George W. Bush. But these are the two, there'll be two photographs. This you may recognize from the promotional material that was sent around for the lecture. Um, this photograph and the next one are images of Harper Lee from the 1950s. She um, moved to New York City in the um, early 1950s, in 1949, when she was in her early 20s. And both of these images come from that period in her life. This image is the one I'd like us to use to look over us tonight. It's uh, Harper Lee, who is obviously defiant, <laughs> Harper Lee, who is very confident, or at least gives us a pose of confidence. And that's the Harper Lee who we have to try to reimagine as we think about Go Set a Watchman. 
To Kill a Mockingbird, Go Set a Watchman, and The Discovery of Racism. Early last summer came the surprising news that Harper Lee was about to publish a second novel, more than half a century after her iconic To Kill a Mockingbird had appeared in 1960. Mockingbird, the story of a young girl's initiation into the reality of Southern racism, under the guidance of her idealistic, courageous lawyer father, has been revered by millions of readers worldwide. To Kill a Mockingbird famously interweaves two inspirational stories, its knowing account of how the tomboy scout challenges Southern prejudice has made the novel one of the most cherished coming-of-age stories in American culture, while its lionization of Atticus Finch, a small-town Alabama lawyer who puts himself and his family at risk to serve as counsel for a black man falsely accused of raping a white woman, upholds the rule of law as sacred and champions the right to equal justice no matter one's color. Published in the midst of the U.S. Civil Rights Movement, only a few years after the Supreme Court ruled segregation in public schools unconstitutional in the landmark Brown versus the Topeka Board of Education decision in 1954, and just before attempts to integrate the University of Mississippi in 1962 and the University of Alabama a year later, To Kill a Mockingbird has been credited by many civil rights activists as a decisive inspiration. Morris Dees, for example, the founding director of the Southern Poverty Law Center, says Harper Lee's portrait of Atticus made him realize as a teenager that the open racial discrimination he saw in the courts and police enforcement in his small Alabama town, only 100 miles from Harper Lee's hometown of Monroeville, was injustice that had to be challenged first at the level of individual conscience. In 1962, To Kill a Mockingbird was made into an enormously successful movie starring Gregory Peck as Atticus. His performance recognized with one of three Oscars awarded the film. The novel won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction in 1961 and has gone on to sell 40 million copies. For a long time, it was one of the most widely taught books in American secondary schools. To Kill a Mockingbird has been praised lavishly by a broad spectrum of admirers from Andrew Young to George Bush, Tom Brokaw to Oprah Winfrey. Maybe that's not the broadest range. <laughs> the latter of whom called To Kill a Mockingbird, quote, our national novel. A 1991 survey of readers by the Book of the Month Club in the Library of Congress found that To Kill a Mockingbird was ranked second only to the Bible as books, quote, most often cited as making a difference. For reasons you may be familiar with or can readily imagine, To Kill a Mockingbird also has provoked detractors. When we talk later about Go Set a Watchman, we'll encounter some of the objections that have been raised to To Kill a, Mo or to Kill a Mockingbird, and we shall explore how Go Set a Watchman may alter our understanding of what Lee was originally trying to say about the racial crisis in the U.S. South during the decades of the modern civil rights movement. I'll be proposing that Lee's new publication works as a welcome complication of the more purely inspirational To Kill a Mockingbird. As the initial version of Lee's famous book, Go Set a Watchman is a kind of long-buried foundation that reveals a more penetrating insight into the nation's unresolved racist heritage. It suggests how the opinions and feelings of white liberals, however well-intentioned, could not be counted upon still cannot be counted upon 
to redress the evils of racism and segregation. And it diagnoses the powerful habit of denial that makes every fresh discovery of racism by Americans who are not its objects an ever new, ever unwanted surprise. Let me take up this last point about the habit of denial first. The arrival of a new Harper Lee novel treating Atticus Scout and some of the same subject matter as To Kill a Mockingbird generated great anxiety among the original novel's vast fan base. Pre-publication reviews last spring alerted readers to disturbing discrepancies introduced by Watchmen's new version of the story. Set in the 1950s, Scout's dismay at the town of Maycomb's hypocrisy and racial blindness combusts upon her return from New York City, where she has been living for five years. A young woman, now in her mid-20s, Scout is known as Jean Louise. Atticus appears as an aging racist who defends Southern resistance to Northern intervention over civil rights, who disparages the readiness of Negroes for full enfranchisement and social equality, and who participates in one of the notorious white citizens councils formed throughout the South to oppose desegregation. The once fearless defender of racial justice is even revealed to have attended a KKK meeting when he was younger. The media largely shared the view that Gosetta Watchman was the desecration of an icon. The New York Times headlined its review, Harper Lee's Gosetta Watchman gives Atticus Finch a dark side, and featured his most racist comments to Jean Louise. Here are two samples. Quote, Atticus says, the Negroes down here are still in their childhood as a people. Or, do you want Negroes by the carload in our schools and churches and theaters? Do you want them in our world? The reviewer anticipates readers' anxieties. This is from the review. The depiction of Atticus and Watchmen makes for disturbing reading. And for Mockingbird fans, it's especially disorienting. How could the saintly Atticus, described early in the book in much the same terms as he is in Mockingbird, suddenly emerge as a bigot. Suggestions about changing times and the polarizing effects of the civil rights movement seem insufficient when it comes to explaining such a radical change, and the reader, like Scout, cannot help feeling baffled and distressed." End quote. Many fans were so alarmed by the advanced bad news that they swore not to read Gosetta Watchmen. I know you've all met people um, who say, I cannot read this book. Many of my friends and students told me they had no intention of spoiling their cherished memories of To Kill a Mockingbird by reading the new book. The controversy surrounding its publication in the first place didn't help matters. Was the 89-year-old Harper Lee, now in poor health and recently deprived of the oversight of her sister, herself a lawyer who had handled all these professional matters but who had died in 2012, was the author really changing her mind after decades? Or was she responding to pressures from newcomers to her literary affairs, as many suspected? Such protectiveness about To Kill a Mockingbird I take as symptomatic of the role a work such as this has played in national self-imagining. To Kill a Mockingbird represents for many Americans the best we can believe of ourselves. It functions as something like a national ego ideal. The U.S. wants to think of itself as a republic founded on ideals of freedom, justice, and equality. And historically, it has put its confidence in the power of political liberalism to extend the full rights of citizenship, descending from those ideals, to disfranchised minorities. Atticus's pronouncements that, quote, 
Our courts have their faults, as does any human institution. But in this country, our courts are the great levelers. And in our courts, all men are created equal. Or his counsel that, quote, you never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb into his skin and walk around in it, end quote. Those are core democratic ethical precepts that the novel extols, and they reflect the aspirational selves of many readers. However, this is not what To Kill a Mockingbird started out to be, and it's worthwhile to see what Harper Lee had initially imagined, saying in the mid-1950s as she composed her first novel, as well as instructive to think about some of the pressures that turned the preliminary form of the novel, as represented by Gossetta Watchman, into, quote, America's national novel. Lee's original manuscript, since that's almost certainly what we have in Gossetta Watchman, centers on the 26-year-old Jean Louise's most recent annual return to her hometown of Maycomb. Atticus, aging, arthritic, and ossifying in soul as well, has been joined by his sister in keeping house, the two of them representing to the metropolitan sophisticate, Jean Louise, the backwardness of small town Southern conservatism. The two elderly Finches complain about the alarming changes accompanying desegregation in the 50s South, with young blacks taking new liberties in their social behavior and with outside pressure angering locals from the NAACP, the communists, even the newspapers in New York. But the manuscript's eventual confrontation with racism and the crisis of desegregation takes half the book to materialize. And it's clear that Lee has put Jean Louise on the slow track toward an unwanted and unexpected blow up over the issue. In fact, when Jean Louise returns to Maycomb, she sinks back into its world of unconscious white racism. At the end of lunch in town, for example, a black hand, quote, a black hand held out the check on a tray. The hand was familiar to her, and she looked up. Hi, Albert. They put you in a white coat. Yes, ma'am, Miss Scout, said Albert. How's New York? The dissociation of a black hand from the rest of a person reflects white Southern habits of noticing the black body only in its capacity as labor. Maybe Albert hopes that in New York, Jean Louise has been discovering her blind spots. Jean Louise's initial concern in Ghost Had a Watchman, however, is not her encounter with Southern racism, but her threatened induction into Southern marriage. She's engaged to a young protege of her father's named Henry Clinton, who, although conventional in the extreme, presents himself to the high-spirited Jean Louise as a sort of romantic inevitability. Hank's dull as ditchwater, though, and when Jean Louise enlarges her reputation for flouting town mores, by inducing him to go swimming in the river late one night. They're spied out by locals and made cause for scandal. The repressiveness of life in Maycomb finally addles the expat New Yorker. The tedium of teas with former classmates entering the new house, new baby stage. Panic at the idea of marriage to a man who believes, Jean Louise makes him say, that a loving marriage requires a wife's, quote, losing her own identity. In New York, she fumes to herself, you are your own person. In one important respect, then, Jean Louise's story in Watchmen involves her refusal of a feudal culture's options for women that restrict their independent-mindedness, self-expression, and social equality. 
In Go Set a Watchman, the tomboy scout has turned into something of a gender renegade. Anyhow, anyhow, remembering when she was surprised by her first menstrual period, Jean Louise recalls thinking, quote, that a cruel practical joke had been played upon her. She must now go into a world of femininity, a world she despised, could not comprehend nor defend herself against, a world that did not want her, end quote. Jean Louise's recoil from Southern femininity has to do with her rejection of masculine authoritarianism and hypocrisy. Experiencing what it means to be despised, unwanted, and defenseless also puts her in a position to begin to recognize the foundational racial ills of her society. What Jean Louise comes to grasp is that the conditions stifling her personhood as a free-spirited woman in a sexist society descend from the same set of interests and beliefs responsible for the stifling of personhood for free blacks in a racist society. With her fiance lining up behind her father, Jean Louise realizes how paternalism remains toxic in the small town, plantation-rooted deep south, a paternalism convinced it knows what's best for women and blacks and will distribute liberties to them when it deems them ready. The romantic and racial plot lines of Watchmen at one point intersect literally and so symbolically on a site associated with the Southern Plantation legacy. The first serious conversation Jean Louise has with Hank about marriage, the one that leads to the whim of the midnight swim, takes place on the grounds of the original 19th century Simon Finch plantation. The couple scramble down a long set of stairs to take their plunge, the steps built originally for slaves to carry goods between landing and big house. To be clear, being black and being a white female are not equal or even symmetrical conditions in the Jim Crow South, and part of Jean Louise's struggle to see the truth of things in Watchmen involves her belated realization that she has always been a white person in her dealings with black people, even beloved ones like Calpurnia, the Finch's domestic servant, who becomes the de facto replacement for the children's dead mother. One of the most powerful scenes in Watchmen has Jean Louise visit the elderly Calpurnia during the trial of her grandson, who has been accused of homicide after he strikes a pedestrian with his car. Calpurnia's whole family accepts that the boy is guilty and will go to jail, but for the first time in her relations with her former nursemaid, Jean Louise senses an air of racial tension between them. Jean Louise cries, what's the matter? I'm your baby. Have you forgotten me? Why are you shutting me out? Why, what are you doing to me? To which Calpurnia replies, what are you all doing to us? Jean Louise cannot fully absorb this. She thinks Calpurnia, quote, sat there in front of me and she didn't see me. She saw white folks. Lee is suggesting how the mindfulness of race and the experience of racism always come as a shocking discovery to those who do not suffer from them. Jean Louise is brought to the brink of renouncing the South altogether. After denouncing her father's opposition to desegregation, she thinks to herself, God in heaven, take me away from here. Yet as much as Jean Louise reviles the racism and hypocrisy this visit home has more sharply exposed to her, she cannot bring herself to abandon what she calls her world in its time of need. In a startling reversal, the last pages of Watchmen have Jean Louise commit to returning to Maycomb to live. 
Her uncle encourages her by pointing out that, quote, it takes a certain kind of maturity to live in the South these days. But there's no sense of the actual social forms her life would take, personal, familial, professional, political, or otherwise. Lee's book doesn't come to an end. It just stops. After Atticus's long racist rant in their final showdown, which so outrages Jean Louise, she goes weak-kneed when he praises her for being a daughter who would make any father proud. Quote, I certainly hoped a daughter of mine would hold her ground for what she thinks is right. Stand up to me, first of all. Then she thinks to herself, dear goodness, the things I learned. I did not want my world disturbed, but I wanted to crush the man who's trying to preserve it for me. I wanted to stamp out all the people like him. I can't beat him, and I can't join him. All she can say to Atticus at the last is, <clears throat> quote, I think I love you very much. Harper Lee's initial manuscript breaks off in confusion because she cannot imagine how the conflicts facing Jean Louise, her family, the community, and a segregated South will reach a resolution that preserves her world while utterly revolutionizing it. But if Lee cannot figure out how to go forward with her story and imagine the collective commitment and actions it would take to bring about desegregation, a movement already well underway by the time Lee submitted her draft to Lippincott in 1957, one ineradicable achievement of Lee's, Lee's original draft is its blunt denunciation of white Southern cowardice and hypocrisy. In the harsh arguments leading up to the conclusion Jean Louise, priding herself on being colorblind, the word that she uses, does call out many Southern self-deceptions. She dismisses her fiancé when he admits he misrepresents his own more liberal views in order to advance his career and make them. We are poles apart, she says to him. I don't know much, but I know one thing. I know I can't live with you. I cannot live with a hypocrite. Atticus requires stronger rebuttal. When he blames the NAACP for stirring up racial trouble, Jean Louise answers that it's us who are responsible with talk over states' rights rather than how to address the problems of Negro inequality. When Atticus taunts her with the prospect of, quote, Negroes by the carload in our schools and churches and theaters, end quote, she fires back, they're people, aren't they? We were quite willing to import them when they made money for us. Desegregated schools as, dis as degrading education? The scholastic level down the street, Jean Louise says, couldn't be any lower than it already is. Negroes incapable of citizenship? No different in Jean Louise's eyes than what, quote, Hitler and that crowd in Russia have done. Given the South's practice of material and moral genocide through a hundred years of systematic denial that they're human, Atticus earns every syllable of Jean Louise's conversation ender. You son of a bitch. I want to speculate briefly on one pressure that might have led Lee to so frank an acknowledgement of the South's ills. One of the anxieties coursing through Gossetta Watchman as a work of the 1950s owes to its Cold War moment. A great sore spot in American ideology during the Cold War was the continuing fact of open racial oppression in the South. The Soviets exploited this condition to, the, to point out the hypocrisy of American democracy. The discrepancy between the American creed of equality and justice on the one hand 
and the realities of Negro disfranchisement on the other had been addressed as well in Gunnar Myrdal's explosive sociological study, An American Dilemma, published in 1944. Continued racial inequities through World War II, though partially improved, nonetheless delivered a scene in the 1950s rife with impatience and activism. Some historians argue that the John F. Kennedy administration was moved at least as much by considerations of Cold War credibility as commitment to the ideal of racial justice in its eventual insistence on desegregation in the South. The Atticus of Gosetta Watchman is particularly sensitive to this role of the U.S. South in the politics of the Cold War. Early on in the novel, we learn he's reading about Alger Hiss, accused of spying for the Soviets. He complains that the NAACP and other communist organizations are primed to intervene in racial conflicts in the South. And even Jean Louise observes Riley that she is standing in her father's kitchen in the middle of what she calls the atomic age. Perversely, a conservative Southerner like the Atticus of Gossetta Watchman, who explicitly identifies himself as a Jeffersonian Democrat, targets the U.S. government as another source of totalitarian threat. The South must resist federal intervention in the same spirit the region tried to resist national abolition of slavery, federal reconstruction after the Civil War, and now federally mandated desegregation. From that standpoint, the South plays the role of a third world nation resisting totalitarian takeover. In such a scenario, social change comes about as, a democ as democratic reform, not revolution, as the work of individuals, not the government. The South becomes the most American place of all. Jean Louise is pushed back toward the South because her experience in New York makes the, makes the North feel fascistic to her. Here's what she says about New York. I'll tell you how New York is. New York has all the answers. People go to the YMHA, the English-speaking union, Carnegie Hall, the new school of social research, and find the answers. The city lives by slogans, isms, and fast, sure answers. New York is saying to me right now, you, Jean Louise Finch, are not reacting according to our doctrines regarding your kind. Therefore, you do not exist. The problem is that Lee knows the legacy of Southern resistance to tyranny is no basis on which to build a free society, to see the South through desegregation and the end of legal racism. Jean Louise's longing to preserve a world and overthrow it at the same time necessarily breaks off. Lee had to rethink her book altogether to fantasize a simpler, less ambivalent course of action. When Harper Lee submitted her manuscript to Lippincott Publishers, through an agent to whom she had been introduced in New York City, she did not expect the hospitable reception it received. After unsatisfying years at Huntington College and later the University of Alabama, Lee had abandoned law school and moved to New York City in 1949. She took a job as a desk clerk at British Overseas Airline Company, found a group of artist friends, including a circle of transplanted Southerners, and worked on her fiction. Eventually, she was introduced to an agent who guided her to Lippincott. A veteran editor there, Tay Hohoff, took Lee under her wing, and together they radically transformed a manuscript that possessed obvious promise, but was still a work in progress. Under Hohoff's guidance, Lee revised assiduously. It was a painful process, and a famous anecdote has Lee calling Hohoff one night in winter to say she had just thrown the whole manuscript out her apartment window. 
the pages scattering across the snow. Hohoff commanded her to get outside and gather them up. <laughs> Lee was a willing pupil. Later, she acknowledged that she was cooperative because she was an unpublished nov novice and said, um, and so, quote, she did as she was told. Lee changed the setting of the novel to the 1930s, thereby making the focal narrator Scout a child of eight. New characters appeared and original ones disappeared or were given different degrees of importance. The pivotal incident now becomes, became Tom Robinson's trial, which is barely mentioned in Watchmen. The accuser's family, the Ewells, had to be developed. Subplots such as the one involving Boo Radley, an emotionally impaired neighbor, were completely new additions. Most dramatically, Atticus is pictured in his prime, now as a courageous defender of equal justice under the law, a hero eventually to his children, to the black community, and to millions of readers inspired by his stand against intolerance and injustice. Between 1950 and 1960, the years Tehohoff was helping Harper Lee develop Atticus into an embodiment of individual moral heroism, she was also writing a book of her own, a biography of the New York City settlement house activist, John Lovejoy Elliott. Hohoff's book is called A Ministry to Man. It was published in 1959, and it presents a figure of remarkable personal devotion to alleviating the urban ills of poor housing, bad education, inadequate cultural and recreational resources, and the economic exploitation of immigrants. Eliot's career spanned the first 50 years of the 20th century, and Hohoff's story of his life is truly inspirational. Eliot was the grandson of a famous martyr of abolitionism, the Illinois preacher Owen Lovejoy, who was murdered by those opposing his involvement in the Underground Railroad. Such profiles and courage almost certainly affected the writing, the rewriting of Atticus in the course of Lee and Hohoff's conversations. At the same time, one small but significant plot change reflects a turn in meaning from Gosetta Watchman to To Kill a Mockingbird. In Lee's draft, Jean Louise remembers that Atticus was successful in his defense of Tom Robinson, that the all-white jury actually found Tom innocent, an unprecedented outcome for a case in which a black man was charged with raping a white woman. In To Kill a Mockingbird, Robinson is found guilty despite Atticus's heroic and clearly just defense, and is murdered when he flees protective custody, killed by a deputy's bullets fired into his back. Atticus's failure to win acquittal for Robinson and To Kill a Mockingbird suggests that individual nobility alone cannot reform the South's irrational racism and implies that federal intervention will be necessary after all. By resetting the story back in 1935, To Kill a Mockingbird removes the literal contexts of both the Cold War and later civil rights hostilities, making the relevant instance of federal involvement in the South's affairs its rescue of the region from the Great Depression. Here is a kind of northern intervention that worked and that, despite early resistance to it, helped propel the South into its post-World War II era of prosperity. Setting the novel in the 1930s lays the groundwork for justifying northern federal involvement in the South's problems in the 1950s. The overall effects of these revisions is that Lee's original manuscript about a racist white South's confusion, delay, and opposition in the face of forced desegregation in the 50s becomes nationalized 
as a story meant to inspire confidence that white Southern liberals and Northern judicial mandate might unite to reform the South and end Jim Crow peaceably and lawfully. It is in this light that Gregory Peck does not seem out of place as an obvious non-Southerner playing Atticus. His performance reinforces the novel's presentation of Atticus as transcending regional limitations. Peck is a national figure, and so a Cold War universal spokesman for the broadest liberal ideals of democratic freedom, equality, justice, and the rule of law. Now my conclusion. By the time the 50th anniversary of To Kill a Mockingbird was celebrated in 2010, numerous detractors had pointed to its limitations in depicting African-American characters. It's arguably excessive confidence in American liberalism as producing real racial progress, its reliance on Southern stereotype, its blindness to black agency. You'll, uh, you might know that Toni Morrison famously called the novel a white savior narrative. Its submission to heteronormative gender demands and paternalistic authority and so on. By the 1990s, many readers were arguing that the novel's rootedness in 1950s Southern white values compromised its relevance to contemporary audiences, particularly when featured in curricula for students of color. In 1992, Monroe Friedman wrote a piece condemning Atticus's values as a lawyer in the journal Legal Review on the grounds that Atticus acts on the basis of the very gentlemanly paternalism responsible for upholding slavery, racism, and sexism in Southern society in the first place. We know that Atticus takes on the defense of Robinson only reluctantly, saying he never wanted such a case, and limits his advocacy strictly to Tom's guilt under the law, never suggesting any commitment to broader questions of social inequality or segregation. When Scout asks why he accepts Tom's case, Atticus answers, the main one is, if I didn't, I couldn't hold up my head in town. I couldn't represent this county in the legislature. I couldn't even tell you or Jim not to do something again. It is worth remembering that Atticus's often quoted remark about not being able to understand a person unless you walk around in his skin for a while, though it is always cited as a comment about racial understanding, is actually something he says about Scout's new elementary school teacher. Once Jean Louise shrinks to the child Scout, there's no one to stand up to Atticus's common racism, exemplified in his remark about the KKK being just a long ago political organization, not a violent vigilante group. I've learned from a colleague at Boston University that there are high school classes that routinely teach To Kill a Mockingbird by putting Atticus on trial. But To Kill a Mockingbird also retreats more broadly from the racial hostilities around desegregation toward much milder scenarios of race relations in 1930s Maycomb. Because an adult point of view is largely replaced by a child's, Southern evils are presented as disappointing personal shortcomings, not conditions with histories and political or ideological motivation, Southern racism morphs into barely recognizable forms that let it hide in plain sight. Boo Radley, for example, is invented as a kind of proxy black person, manacled, rebellious, imprisoned in a gothic house of horrors, but ultimately proving to be the most naturally ethical of anyone and eager to serve his betters. 
Calpurnia's question about what whites are doing to her disappears. To Kill a Mockingbird is all about what is happening to white people. The story of a black man falsely accused of a crime and eventually killed is, after all, introduced only to become the backdrop against which narratives of white courage and coming of age play out. And Atticus's willingness to endanger his family and reputation are the novel's focus, not Tom's terror, his family's plight, or racial violence more broadly. Gossetta Watchman confronts its blind spots in a way To Kill a Mockingbird does not. Gossetta Watchman complicates To Kill a Mockingbird, intruding itself onto the finished first novel to create an awkward, unresolved text in two versions, a hybrid work that displays central fissures between beliefs and realities regarding race in the US. Gossetta Watchman may not be more than a halting first effort by a beginning author, but it also may suggest a less palatable truth about race in America than its more wishful, older, younger self. Gossetta Watchman taints To Kill a Mockingbird, making many readers adjust their views of characters they admire and see things that they might wish to ignore. But its appearance last spring, during a time in our country of racial emergency, of racist crimes that point to America's continued disavowal of the legacy of foundational racism, makes it a timely reminder of how national blind spots continue to foster murderous consequences. As so many scholars have demonstrated, it is not that race-based chattel slavery and its genocidal effects on native, on native and captured African populations was a tragic mistake, some mere flaw in the American experiment. Rather, slavery was the indispensable condition for the illegitimate mistaking of the country. The principles of individual freedom, equality, and the pursuit of happiness, for some, depended upon and were inseparable from the reduction of disfranchised others to bondage, inequality, and misery. Ta-Nehisi Coates insists on the need to reckon with this contradiction of national success, <clears throat> arguing that only reparations will address historical wealth disparity, income inequality, education arrears, housing exclusion, etc. He argues that reconciliation comes only through real, tangible measures to make things right, not just feeling or thinking in certain enlightened ways. Perhaps it's no accident that Harper Lee, whatever her sense now of her books or legacy, whatever her understanding of American society today, consented to sharing this work of her imagination in a form that is much less presentable, much less reverential, much less facile in its optimism. The month before Gosetta Watchman appeared, Dylan Roof took selfies draped in a Confederate flag, then walked into the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston and gunned nine people to death. His was a grotesque climax to a scheme of murderous violence against black people. Whether guilty or innocent, Tom Robinson had the same inexorable fate in both Gosetta Watchman and To Kill a Mockingbird. Terrified at the prospect of vigilante justice, he flees custody only to be shot 17 times in the back. To Kill a Mockingbird is an artfully realized work of fiction and one that inarguably has inspired extraordinary contributions to social justice. But even as it celebrated heroic personal responsibility, it may have obstructed other ways of thinking about race in America. Exposing racism not just as personal failing, but as the enabling blind spot of an entire civilization might have been, after all, 
a greater achievement within the grasp of a young Southern writer who, in her incomplete first book, was more in touch with the incompleteness of the Republic than we might have reckoned. Thanks. Thank <clears throat> you.